Listeners everywhere, welcome to The Movie Show with Joel and Ryan, the weekly fix for your screen addiction and a trusted source for discussion of all things film and television. Please keep in mind that for the purposes of this podcast, Joel and Ryan are not acting as journalists, but rather fellow moving picture enthusiasts. All of their opinions should be taken as such. Also, please be warned that while Joel and Ryan may seem like petulant children, they are, in fact, adults who may occasionally use adult language. While they promise to bleep out all the worst words, it's a good bet you will still understand what they were saying. And now, with no further ado, here's Joel and Ryan. Hello, hello, and welcome. Welcome to the movie show with Joel and Ryan once again. I am Joel. And I'm Ryan. And we're happy to have you here. And if you're here, most likely you know why you're here and what we're going to be talking about. Uh, It is the climactic conclusion to our deep dive into 1982's Blade Runner. The last, last, uh, not the last 10 minutes, but the penultimate 10 minutes of the Blade Runner soundtrack is called Wounded Animals. Isn't that pretty cool? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And and that's kind of... Not tremendously musical track on Mm -hmm. there. One of the least, but it's a great name for the fire, for the pretty much the final 10 minutes of the movie Mm -hmm. are you are you bringing that up now uh as an indicator of how how you think we're doing today (laughs) (laughs) i was going to answer that legitimately but you're making a joke i'm bringing it up now because my brain went my brain went file this for later when you're talking about the end and of course when i do that Oof, no, there's like a twenty percent chance it's yep. going to come back if I do that mm-hmm. on a good day. But today, after on a Monday, yep. we haven't done a Monday podcast. No, uh-uh. and no, we used to do them. Yeah, we we're yeah, dear listener, we were just uh, talking about how in the before times, uh, <laughs> we used to do these after work. We used to do them. I I used to have a two show day, and between shows. I would uh, haul my cookies over to Ryan's house. We'd record a podcast and I'd go back and do the second show. Uh, and um, and it wasn't that long ago, but it does seem inconceivable yeah. now that we would do yeah. anything like that. Even this uh, was. So we're really doing this thing after work tomorrow? And, <laughs> yeah. And, it's like, and we even had it out. We even had it out. And we're like, oh, we could move it. We could do it Saturday. Whew. No, you know what? I'm it's glad, just probably better I'm for glad everybody. We're hitting it, even if we're a little, you know, messed up. I'm glad we're yeah, a little it late in the day. While it's still fresh in our minds, so it's been less mm-hmm. than a week since we watched it together. Uh, we left off not really with a cliffhanger, but with a with a game changer. We we yep. just heard of some big news about a about a, a very clearly important character in the film and. And we've just seen really the blood and guts and the mm-hmm. harsh reality of what Blade Running really is in this universe. So it was a good place to stop. Yeah, um, we are. Yeah, we're right at the we're right at the midpoint. Um, right as yeah, right at that 
right in the we're middle in the of the movie. But mm-hmm. we're, even though we're in the middle of the movie, we're at the beginning of the podcast, and we're right at the beginning of the deep dives. So... We are indeed. Here we go. Part two of our deep dive into Blade Runner. Our intrepid hero, Deckard, he had just retired Zora. Uh, she she literally fell into the gap, uh, <laughs> smashing through the gap windows, uh, taking out some mannequins. Um, it's a, a resting sequence full of crazy yep. reflections and brutal violence and... And, uh, and, and clear and plastic terrible. trench coats. And he's clear gone... Pla- He's yeah. in the movie. He's gone and bought his drink already, right? Because this this whole part of the film got all changed in order from how it was written, and it changed a lot of stuff. Um, so I think he's gone and bought his drink. That's when Gaff comes up to him with the cane. We talked through that. He comes yes. back to the spinner, and uh, the lieutenant is there. M. Emmett Walsh's character, and he he tells him, "Yeah, there's four four more, and then you're done." And he's like, "No." Mm-hmm. There's Three more, and I know I'm repeating myself, but let's just to get no. This is to get a running start. Previously on the movie show with Joel and Ryan, <laughs> yeah. um, he tells him there's four more, and he's no three. And he's really pointed about it. Yeah, yeah, three, and then I'm done. And he's like, no four. That's skin job, and that's what that's what he calls. I think he's is he the only one that calls him that? But that's I think what he, he is. That's the only time I think I we ever hear, hear that. Again, the voiceover explains the the slang skin job. You know what the, what the epithet means. Um, we don't really need that. We know what it means. You can yeah. just tell what that is. Um, that's a horrible thing to call uh, anybody, and that's what they call replicants. Um, that skin job you interviewed over at the Tyrell Corporation, Rachel, she's gone missing. She's she's left. So mm-hmm. you got to take care of her, too. Um, and then, you know, I, Lieutenant uh, Bryant just goes on about his day. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. Gaff gives him, a you know, Edward James almost gives him a little wink. All of Ed's stuff. Not all of it, but... So much of it. It's this wordless performance. Yep. It's really, in a way, that's, we debated this on the show, but in a way, that's, that, as long as you're getting the screen time in, not having to talk is one of the greatest gifts you can get from a project because you, you're just doing the work without any of the mm-hmm. other person's dialogue getting in your way of being. It really yeah. is. I don't know if easier is the term, but it, it 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 just is a way to go at it in a pure internal way, which is very yeah, appealing. Yeah, it's as well, and it's also it's absolutely maximizing every moment you have where the camera where you you are getting caught by the camera, whether whether the camera's on you or whether you're in the camera frame. He he absolutely maximizes every single 
moment there he does not he he he's never turned off yeah he is he's always trying to find a way where where uh where gaff can have some sort of impact yep on on uh on the on the moment on the scene on and, the everybody. and knowing the way ridley scott works he he's earning the screen time that he's getting through the interesting things that he's doing oh yeah yeah um in the fantastic uh, making of Alien, um, the feature-length version by by Charles de la Sarica, friend of the show, kind of, not really friend anymore. Of, no, he is. We're calling him friend of the show. We're going to go with friend of him, the show. <laughs> we might even go with acolyte. He's an acolyte <laughs> of the show. Well, anyway. He is currently working, he's currently working on a behind-the-scenes documentary about our podcast. That would be nice. That would be the dream. <laughs> um <laughs> But past guest, you know, super yeah. uh, fellow film fanatic and and uh, just a guy I admire greatly. In the Alien documentary, he captures uh, Scott saying his philosophy about about directing actors, and it is ninety percent casting them correctly. <laughs> Yeah. because because he really lets them float after that <laughs> and you know he, he'll tell them what's go there go here louder faster slower but he's mm-hmm. just not gonna sit down and talk about your feelings with you much when you're working so you have to have it and alien of course uh, casting is it's perfect it's perfection and this it is the same it is right. really really good and and yet nobody's really getting a lot of special attention from him as far as directing Sean Young, probably more than most, but he, he literally in, um, dangerous days, the making of blade Runner. It's a two and a half hour feature length documentary. I said it on the Charles de Lazarica interview that I, I, and I, there's a lot, I have a lot of real deep favorites. Um, Hearts of Darkness, The Making Apocalypse Now, Under Pressure, The Making of the Abyss, The Hamster Factor, The Making of Twelve Monkeys. These, these, these are documentaries that are just—they're the best ever. But Charles's Dangerous Days is the bar none, and it's partly because this—the making of this—is so rife with stories and firsthand accounts and people differing opinions while they were working, like. It just got so much great stuff in it, and so many people were involved in that doc. I think it's the greatest to date documentary uh, on the making of a movie ever. And right. and I'm we're kind of just talking about it. I could I could take because I've because re- Future Noir, the book that was written about it back at the time, it was kind of you know, or back around the late '80s when it was still a relatively fresh film. Um, and, and this documentary, which came out with the final cut, which was, I don't know, it's getting 10, 12 years ago now, Mm -hmm. they're just the finest things ever. And they're so full of interesting stories and anecdotes. And I'm sharing a couple as we go, but I just kind of don't have to, because I, I'm taking this moment here, going to kind of save this to the end of the show, but there's a, there'll be a lot to talk about at the end of the show when the movie wraps actually. Um, anyway, so just know those things are incredible resources. I don't know how anyone couldn't be riveted by dangerous days. Um, maybe, maybe a book is too much of a commitment. I don't know, but future noir is, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, it's just, it's just a stunning 
Facebook an account, uh, you know, at a time when the cult was still pretty small for this movie. We'll save why for the breakdown of the various versions that I promised you that's coming up. Right. Anyway, um, I don't know where I was going with that. I was going to tell you, well, I'm talking about Ridley Scott's idea of casting and yeah. almost, and his, his letting almost just do it. His letting Rutger just go off his capturing and embracing every weird little tick that William Sanderson puts on screen. Um, mm -hmm. All of it, it's just, it's just kind of a, amazing to behold. And it really is, it's not done in a vacuum, but it's not done with a ton of, like, Paul Feig, like, let's sit around in a circle and talk about this scene sort of direction. There's a mm -hmm. lot of lighting going on here. There's a, every little thing right. is, the, well, yeah, the technical it goes back acumen to... with which Blade Runner was made required a lot of attention and it required a lot of time of Ridley's not looking at a monitor, not talking to an actor, but literally looking through the lens of a camera. Yeah. It, it goes back to our production meeting uh, episode uh, two episodes ago, yeah. all of those people and all, all of those positions that we talked about uh, and how they help to make a movie, all of those end up almost all of them end up reporting to the director in some way and the director ha is responsible for all of that's why we still say it's a director's medium because ultimately that director is choosing all of the things and any anyone who has a question and so simply there there just isn't an, i mean that and that's why casting does become so important because you have to cast people who are going to work the way you need them to work whether that is, like you said, in Paul Feig's case, being willing to sit down and talk about things, or is it someone who, you know, is just like, and that, you know, I, I've done I all the work. I Paul Feig a lot, but I'm not ripping on him in that case. That's a... No, no, this is just, this is his, his strength yeah. as a storyteller, and it, it shows mm -hmm. up on screen. It, it's Spielberg, not really strength. Spielberg, uh, I know, like, for West Side Story, uh, you know... Um, uh, Anna Isabel talked about how you know they did they had rehearsals and they sat and talked about things and they they really broke broke the whole story down uh, in this case there, there just isn't time and money enough to do that and so the casting of who you you know all that yeah all that actor work all you, the choices that 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 are being made need to be made or you know have to be made when uh, when you show up so that all of these other people who uh, have just, you know, spent time making it look like it's raining and all of this stuff like that. They ain't standing around waiting for you to find your uh, what, uh, waiting for you to find a, how, 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 what's going on here? How am I supposed to uh, uh, talk to me about how I'm supposed to, you know, where, where you see this going? No, no, that work's got to be done. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's, and, it, and it's captured in the movie and it's fully realized mm -hmm. by everybody. There's not a week performance in the film truly no there really isn't that was that was the other that was one of the things ha having watched it again this past time uh over over at your house is really absolutely how um how there there, there wasn't there there was absolutely there was no one in that movie that wasn't fully bought in fully committed to this story and how how it was being how it how it was how Ridley Scott and others chose to tell this story. Everyone was on the absolute, uh, absolutely on the same page. Yeah. Um, although again, lots of tension between the actors, lots of tension between the director and the star, 
lots sure. of tension still, but it the work it shows up on screen, and it's it's typically known as I think because Harrison has badmouthed it through the years, it's typically known as one of his weaker performances because he's he's a character that's adrift in the story and doesn't know who he is and doesn't want to be involved in any of this and is reacting to sort of everything that's being thrown his way. And it was his frustration that the character's not very active, but it there's there's real growth there. Even though you mm-hmm. only get you don't get Scrooge, you know, on Christmas morning coming out letting us all know how everything's changed. <laughs> there's not yeah. enough time for all that when this when the story comes to a conclusion. But you do get you get a profound change from him, and it's yep. and it and that only works if everything else, like Joel said, if there's truth in everything else every step of the way. Um, and the the other person who's commonly criticized in the film is Sean Young, and I just I think the more I learn about yeah. acting and the more I watch what she's doing in every frame of this movie, it's just it's it's really really good. I mean, she's yeah. she's. As much as anybody, she's coming at this from a really interesting place, and it, and we're able to track that through the movie. And yeah. speaking of Rachel, as the spinner drives away, yeah. Sorry, and, Joel. Um, I know that I know the segue is your purview, but yeah. Well, no, hey, that's a that's a solid one. You've had two really solid segues here to, <laughs> in this episode. But you are a Monday segue man. I'm coming alive. Uh, I come alive at night. Joel is a father <laughs> and a, got other things going on. And no, like most sadly, people, I still, yeah, sadly, I still, I still come alive at night, but not, not until like ten. So oh. I got a couple hours. This is a little early uh, for you, brain. huh? It's a Have little you had early. Your coffee? Uh, yeah. Now that, oh, well, that's how I get through the. That's how I get through the early parts of the day. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, the, the so cop, I, the cops leave our intrepid hero with a bottle of booze sitting in the middle of the street. Where the booze yep. goes and how it comes back—that's part of a, a bit of a continuity error here. But by the way, they changed the order of, right. of things. Um, nevertheless, but, he sees in the crowd, and it's very much visually parallel uh, parallels the way he spotted Zora in the crowd. He yeah. sees. Um, Rachel and one of her ridiculous upper class getups that she's walking yep. around in this weird fur coat with this I don't know what I don't know what you call the big thing that comes up behind her. Yeah, if I, that even yeah, has a I mean, name. It's almost it's almost like a uh, comically large shawl collar. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not that she looks bad; it looks chic no. and ritzy, but it looks so out of place in this grimy world that we're inhabiting. Right. And just the way she moves, the way she's walking, it's just a one little blip. We catch her out of the corner of our eye with, with from his point of view. And, of course, he's just been told he has to assassinate her. So I don't know if we can see his reaction to that idea, and it's not a positive one. So I don't know that we're right. that she's in peril in this moment, but obviously he takes off after her. And on his way, he gets... He gets intercepted by Leon who's been waiting for his friends to leave to mm-hmm. beat the crap out of him and it's a fun beating and it's weird it's like a lot of things in Blade Runner it's so strange the conversation they have while mm-hmm. Deckard is facing one of his many beatdowns of the movie um uh what's his first thing he says what does Leon say the great Brian James he says 
He says, uh, blah, 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 blah. My birth date is what, what, how long do I have to live? Well, how long like, do I have to live? Yeah. He's like four years. And he's like, longer than you. <laughs> he starts yeah. beating him up. Uh, great moment where, where Deckard kind of pulls out the gun and gets it slapped out of his hand. He gets shoved up against the thing. He gets kind of beaten across the face several times. Um, it's... It's amazing scene, and I, I don't like to repeat the dialogue so much when we do this, but there's dialogue here that's repeated later in the most meaningful moment in the film that that's interesting. Um, and I'm remembering how the scene ends, but it, there's something that happens. Oh, uh, terrible thing to live in fear, isn't it, is what he yeah. says to him. And he says, it's nothing, and then he beats him up some, and then he says, it's nothing worse and Byron James is so great in this moment. Nothing worse than having an itch you can never scratch. Never scratch. And Decker can barely talk, and he said, "He, oh, I agree." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He gets the whole uh, exchange is it, absurd, and you're quite certain he's gonna die. Um, and yeah, Leon. And Leon finally gets him where he wants him, slaps him up the face a couple of times, and says. Uh, you know, wake up, time to die. And he takes his fingers like he's going to stick them right through his eyes into his brain. And yep. right as he's about to do that, he get you hear a gunshot. You see the wound in sort of his forehead, and he sort of falls over on top of Deckard. And it's, it's it, in a great reveal, it's hard to say how visually cool all this is, but in a great mm -hmm. reveal, we see... Rachel, she's picked up the gun that got kicked away and from a pretty decent distance has shot this replicant. Basically the only yeah. place she could kill him with one shot. Zora has demonstrated that. And and Leon is at least, if not the most powerful of these four replicants. They're all right. pretty tough customers, but yeah, he's, he's strong. And he's, you know, I love him because he's, he's clever. You know, we when we mm -hmm. first meet him, he seems like such a dope and such a child. And we realize that that's really part of all of these characters. The only character that doesn't let us see some side of their inner child is is Zora. We never really get that from her. But, yeah. but Leon gives it to us and we think, well, it's because he's the dumb one. But you really, you see it from Pris and you definitely see it from Roy. And yep. you just realize that these... They are children. They're four-year-olds as much as they're sophisticated, hyper-intelligent, super-powerful androids. They're, right. they're, they are children. Um, Deckard leaps into action. He goes and, and uh, you know, get, takes the gun from her and hustles her out of frame and off yeah. to the next thing. Real quick before we move on on this, I mean, one of the things that I think is worth pointing out in this whole thing, I mean, <clears throat> and we see it again towards the end, but this this fight in particular, I mean, it's one of Harrison Ford's great gifts is how how his characters get beat up. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, how, totally agree. How the the react the the reactions that he uh, how how he lets his body. Nat, you know, it, it, it fall or 
get the momentum of a punch, how it carries him, what get, you know, the, the disbelief of how much pain he is in. It's, (laughs) you know, it's, it's one of his spectacular gifts. Yeah. Um, And, and you, and you really get, and this is a a great, another great example. Cause like you said, he's like trying to talk. He's like, if I, maybe if I keep talking to Leon, he'll stop hitting me. And because he's he's trying to hit him back and do, it's Mm -hmm. it's just not a totally one-sided fight. It's just every, Everything Deckard's doing is having zero effect, and mm-hmm. and it, it it is it the way his the way his weird humor comes through, <laughs> even though yeah. he's not playing it like it's humorous. It it's just it is awesome, and yep. I agree. He Harrison's great. He doesn't find it interesting to be a superhero, and he's never really been one in anything I can think of. Yeah, um, yeah there's nothing more fun than when. Than when you know the her heroism is when Indiana Jones picks himself up off the mat and goes back to work, even though he's yep. just been beaten to a pulp. That's right. that's what's fun and that's what's relatable and that's Deckard's not as fun as that, but he's got a little bit of that. That's the that's that old magic that Bryant was talking about in the in that briefing scene. It it he this guy's a survivor somehow. Somehow and yeah. in confrontations with these creatures, he's he's come out ahead every time. Mm-hmm. Um this time he man, he's just seconds from biting it. He needs somebody's yep. help who you suspect has never shot a weapon in her life. You know. Uh it's it's outstanding scene. And what happens? What's the next scene? Is it back well, in their apartment? We, yeah, it goes back to uh, goes back to uh, Deckard's apartment with Rachel. That's where he smuggles her away to. Um, and uh, and and they they converse over drinks beforehand. <laughs> it happens off screen, but yeah. presumably he went and found where the bottle of gin was or whatever he bought because he's yeah he's still got that in his hand. That again, that's just a weird continuity error. The the beating happened before the cop the liquor in the cop scene originally. And, and it was confusing because there's all this extra stuff where she's got to hide and, and they just, yeah, they fixed it. They'd also screwed up the replicant count for the second time in the movie. So it was not a perfect film. Okay. Let's, we'll admit that even mm-hmm. in its original form, it, it took several goes at it to kind of perfect it. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, back in Deckard's apartment, which we've seen a good deal of now that it's, I love the, I love the shot, the close up of him drinking out of the little shot glass and the blood rolling into oh, the water. Holy buckets. That's great. Yeah. It's so awesome. I, mm-hmm. I love, I love her the way I love the, watching her play the piano. Mm-hmm. Um, what's he say to her? Uh, you got the shakes. This is his. Mm-hmm. whatever we obviously stuff's transpired with him on the way to the back to his place but yeah i get him too i get him bad um yeah. so there's this now they both kill the replicant like they have this connection between them i guess mm-hmm. that's what suffices for a date in the, in this type of story this whole scene is awkward and weird and it, it's 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 and it was really created in the editing. That's that's something Ridley does that you can really feel it sometimes. How it, this wasn't what was intended. This is what he made out of what he ended up with, and and it's 
and it's just super interesting in that way. What it it feels like there's a it feels like there's a really important thing that we missed early in the thing before he was playing with the photos. He had a little vision, didn't he? That also um, happened in support Oh yeah, in my little in my breakdown here, it doesn't have it doesn't have little uh doesn't have little, unicorn uh, dream in it. Yeah, did not does not have unicorn. Which is a good it. band name, by the way. Yeah, just a suggestion. You know what I thought would also be a good band name mm. is um is uh clear plastic jacket. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Clear plastic uh, jacket, and you already have your sort of visual motif started for mm -hmm. you, which is important mm -hmm. with bands these days. Um, clear plastic raincoat, maybe. Clear plastic. I, actually, like clear plastic trench coat is what I originally came up with, but I don't think it's a full trench coat. It's short. It it's is. like a, one of those, yeah. It is, and it's in terms of covering it. I guess it keeps you dry, but in terms of covering any other part of your body. And then, of course, being dry is not super important when you put it on immediately after you come out of the shower either. Correct. So that whole style, Doesn't anyway, breathe. that's, that's back to Zora. Does not really breathe, yep. Joanna Cassidy <laughs> as Zora is a, is a treat. She's fantastic. Um, before that scene, I hate to go back like this, but I just feel like you, this is where we have to do it. We can't wait to the end to do it or that, or it feels like, or it feels like we're bringing the setup only just to have a payoff like they do in really bad TV shows. You know what I mean? Right. Um, he was sitting there plunking on his piano. We never see him play the piano, but he twiddles with it when he's thinking. And... I uh, can't. You can't really call it a dream because he's awake when it happens. It feels more like a memory, um, like a memory that is being shared with us, the audience. But he's twinkling on the piano, looking at the photos. He's got this whole array of like antique photos. Some of them from all eras and stuff. Like maybe they're family heirlooms or something. I really don't know. But his his collection of photos mirrors that of leon's precious photos that right he, yeah that he's going back to there's some connection there that that's not explained any more than i'm explaining to you here that's interesting um and then rachel's rachel in the scene that we're at right now not a previous scene is interested in these photos as well she's drawn to them she carries one of her mother along with her that proves her humanity to herself real or imagined mm -hmm. but this vision that he has or this memory that he experiences or this dream that he has people really do call it a dream it's not a dream and i think it's significant that it's not a that it's it's not a dream he doesn't wake up from it right uh is is shot it's very, looks very much like a leftover shot from legend this, this, this scene didn't <laughs> appear does. until 1992 when Legend was in the rearview mirror. So a lot of people claimed, oh, it's an outtake from Legend. But no, it's in the script. Here it is. It was shot in one glorious take where this this horse with a unicorn horn did this perfect kind of... It's just perfect. It's a perfect horse performance, I have to say. Uh, watch it. He travels this distance and stays in frame the entire time and right when he needs to do some dramatic move that carries him out of frame he does it good job it's a unicorn dream though mm -hmm. and the unicorn is important look kind of symbol of later versions of blade runner 
Not included in the original version. The the producers thought it was a stupid non sequitur and sort of insisted that he cut it. Right. Um. So, then. But we get twenty a, minutes so, of movie happen, <laughs> and we're back here, back in his apartment. Rachel's with him. He's kind of trying to make her feel better. Uh, she's asking him all these questions. You know, she's like interrogating him in a sort of weird way. Yeah. Um, that Foyt comp test of yours, do you ever use that test on yourself, she says. And then she's mm-hmm. like, Deckard, Deckard. And he's literally falling asleep with his drink on his chest. This is probably a position that he ends up in a lot in his life, we, right. we would imagine. Um, and he's not answering her anymore. So she heads over to the piano, plays with the photos, and plays this piece of music. I can't remember what the music is, but it's a it's a thing. <clears throat> Um, and it's really, really cool how both when Deckard's twinkling with the piano and when she's playing with the piano, Vangelis' music never stops either time. It 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 is in the same key and it complements the music. It doesn't it doesn't accompany the music. That would be cheesy and horrible, and you would recognize that as stupid. But it the music in and the, and then what happens sort of the droning along with it. And then the music out is amazing. It's just another thing that's amazing about Vangelis and this sort of love theme from Blade Runner that starts playing during the scenes. You can probably figure out where this scene's going. Um, oh, there's not a lot of love in the love scene in Blade Runner. Yeah. Um, yeah. but it's, and I really didn't like it. And I, I, and it's come full circle. What we all didn't like about it back in 1982 went away for decades. And we all thought this is actually the whole, this is the whole movie right here. Like this is brilliant. And now it's come back to did Deckard assault Rachel question mark. And you, somebody blogs about it for a couple of pages and explains to you why Blade Runner is a horrible movie because he doesn't treat her particularly kindly in their quote lovemaking scene. We never get to the lovemaking, but he does come over to her in the piano and he said, I heard, I, I dreamt of music. And she said, yeah, I, I remember lessons. I don't remember if it was mine. And then she repeats his joke back to him or, mm-hmm. or Terrell's nieces. And he, he, he doesn't, he either doesn't connect with that or he doesn't dignify that with a response He's got one thing on his mind. He just gives her the compliment that you play beautifully. And then he leans in. He starts kissing her in the neck. Sean Young's brilliant in this part of it. She's kind of like, it's hard to explain. She's not doing nothing, but she's doing almost nothing. Like as an actor to indicate what that might be. But when it comes time to kiss on the lips, she backs away from him. And then kind of goes, oh, you know, something clicks with her. Again, this is this childlike nature of the replicants of the story. This is weird and awkward. We've all been part, maybe not of something like this scene, but we've all been part of something weird and awkward that was physical right. between the sexes or between the same sexes, whoever the object of the desire in your life was at right. the time. And right. probably it happened when you were younger. I would imagine it's that's certainly mm-hmm. when it happened to me. Yeah, I think for most people, for me, it's usually like uh, it was like two weeks ago. <laughs> right, right. Right. You know, Just, we hey, don't talk. My wife doesn't talk. About hey, it. you're trying new things, man. That's how you keep. This, right, you know, I've been married for a alive. long time. Yep. She heads for the door in a hurry and he follows her there. It beats her there. It's his weird apartment full of clutter and junk. <laughs> yeah. And. And slams the door, 
and uh, sort of grabs onto her and starts kissing her at the door, and then he shoves her up against the blinds along his window. And blinds, you know, whenever there's like a fight or a whatever against blinds, they kind of rattle and make all that weird sound. Mm-hmm. And he tells her what she's to say to him, and he makes her repeat it more vehemently. Yep. And... He, you know, like I said, he shoves her up against the wall, but then he does this kind of thing where he's like, I'm, you know, I'm not going to hurt you, but, yeah. you know, and he yeah. doesn't, but it's still like, it's, it's a weird it's very, master yeah. and servant. You are this artificial thing. I am a person and I am dominating you in this scene. Mm-hmm. Luckily, I think maybe Yes. We'll say, fortunately, when he eases up and treats her a little gently, she decides it's okay. Mm-hmm. And she even is given in the script a line where whatever happens next, we don't see it. It w- is her idea. That helps, but it yeah. doesn't take away the intense awkwardness of this exchange. Yeah. And... And the scene in the script and in the original, not the original version of the film, but the, you know, the idea was that this just went on and on and on. And there was a lot more of this after this, where they leave this scene is the perfect spot. And, and I just think that what is it, what is, it's a terrible thing to live in fear. What does it mean to be a slave? These are things that the film asks and what is this relationship between this guy who he's clearly attracted to her? He's even trying to take care of her in a weird way. He's counseling her through this rough moment. And then when it but when it comes time to to fulfill his desire, he's just not very nice to her. And I I agree that you can't read it any other way. And it's hard to believe that from this point on, there's something between these characters other than lust, really. Because yeah. that's that's what we're left with at the end of this scene. But the lust is palpable. And yep. Sean plays it really, really good without her. Mm-hmm. Because he's 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 such a guy and he's got one thing on his mind. And he's this id of a thing in this scene. And she's got to take care of all the sort of nuances and all the sort of amazing what is happening, what is going on stuff. And it's a, it's... Yeah. Pretty to killer me, by her. And she had to, to get me, tossed around this apartment set for what, two days or something? Probably, probably yeah. Yeah. You know, um, not not fun, probably. No. To me, the scene, it felt like to me for Deckard, felt like here's a guy who has, you know, killed, a, who has retired a whole bunch of replicants in his career. It's, and, and now he's, you know, he's been forced into, uh, uh, retiring to this point well one more and he's gotten the crap beaten out of him uh but and here here's another here's another replicant that he knows is a replicant and it sort of felt to me like like that that primal i'm going to take my reward sort of feeling like he tries at the piano to be tender with her. It's no, only when does. she turns him down that he sort of goes all crazy. Mm-hmm. And that's, and that's what, that's what I mean is, is, is like, he's like, I think it's, it's like, you know, I, I, you know, he, he legitimately feel, you know, he's feeling things, but then when he's rejected, it is that, um, 
that I have been, you know, it, it, she becomes. It, it, well, now I, I'm. It's kind of, tricky. I'm almost it's, it's the really trickiest tricky because, scene in a tricky, <clears throat> tricky movie. I really do think. Because, yeah, I mean, he, he, you know, he, he, but she knows she's a replicant and he can, you know, and, and um, he does a, have a go dominant over her. And, and it felt to me like that whole, that it, it, to me, it felt like, you know, I, I, I am taking my, you know, I've been forced into this situation. I am, I'm going to take my reward and, 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 and you know, it's, it's icky, but you know, um, it, it, uh, it's, you know, it, it is reciprocated to some extent, but it is icky. Ultimately, uh, it is reciprocated, yeah. yeah. yeah and, ultimately. And, yeah, and the movie is going to pay that off to some degree. But the yeah. but the scene is, as far as love scenes, again, I put love yeah. in quotes for the scene, but, and the music is like, it the sax and the electric piano, well, that sounds corny, mm-hmm. and it is, but it isn't, because Vangelis is really... He's just a genius with mood and atmosphere. So the the but the music is antithetical to what we're seeing. It's like paying off, a, like the most expensive like porno movie score that you ever heard in 1982, <laughs> right. Right. and it's just the whole thing is kind of amazing. And every time I watch it, I I I make sure to not look away from it. Look at every detail. Look what's going on between these two mm-hmm. people because. Because you get invested in them, and this is this is a weird moment, no question. And I really do weird. think the, yeah. the the biggest ideas of the movie are all happening here in a wordless way. Yeah. Earlier in the scene, she asks him, "You you seen that thing about life expectancy and all that? Did you see that?" And he's like, uh, "It's just classified." And she's like, "Yeah, but you're a policeman." And he's like, "Um, and look at it." <laughs> <laughs> so is yeah. he lying to her i don't know but it feels like he's lying and if he's telling yeah. the truth he's sure doing it in the most weird suspicious way ever right she asks him even before she starts in on that she says would you if if if, if i ran away i mean what can i do if i ran away would you come after me would you hunt me and kill me and he goes no i wouldn't I owe you one, he says. What a weird thing to say to her in that yeah. moment. But I owe you yeah. one, he says. That's that's what heroes say in movies like this. They say that cliche a lot. Yeah. But as he's walking by her, and this is a visually, this is a stunning moment because she's standing there, and his kitchen lights are reflected in, in her eyes, and they are masking her pupils, which we know because we, it's been explained to us that the void comp test studies the pupil and it based mm-hmm. on its reactions it decides whether you're human or not we cannot see or as i say in my very pretentious review if eyes are the windows to the soul i'm paraphrasing myself now but if eyes are the windows to the soul what are we to take from the fact that these replicants are shown and shot with their eyeballs obscured to us in some weird way so often in the film it's interesting mm-hmm. idea that is worth exploring. I don't know if there's right answers to it. It could just be coincidence. It's hard to say. Um, he walks by her and he says, "No, I wouldn't. I owe you one." And then he and then he turns back to the camera so that he's looking the same direction as her over her shoulder. 
And he says, but somebody would. Yeah. And he, his eyes are the same as hers. It's, it's really, really amazing. This is really, it's, really amazingly shot moment, and I do love this but, little bit of trivia that it's uh, it, it's a technique invented by Fritz Lang, known as the Schuften process, hmm, where Schuften. it's the Schuften with an umlaut Schuften, uh, with <laughs> a piece of mirrored glass mounted at a forty-five degree angle to the camera. So that's so when they hit their mark. It's gonna, it's gonna do that reflection. We saw it in Leon's eyes in the interview at the beginning. We mm -hmm. saw it in Zora's eyes in her dressing room. We see it in the owl's eyes. You see it in the owl's eyes. Yeah, when we meet. Just not a real owl, by the way. No, yeah, we should. Yeah, in case you missed it, in case for some reason you skipped episode, the first episode, first part of this. There's an owl. It's not real. Um, It's not real. So anyway, all. So while all of that is going on back at Deckard's apartment, uh, Roy, um, Roy and Pris are uh, are getting Sebastian to uh, to to they're they're explaining to him what you know that's Roy is there a chapter meets, name to this? Maybe you should just say that. No, I don't. That my this I have a a beat by beat, minute by minute uh oh, okay. breakdown well so it doesn't have any chris chapter is pretty in herself up she is totally punk rock by and, obscuring her eyes by obscuring again, her eyes yeah, or her at least the outer yeah. parts of her eyes she's making yeah. a sort of rank raccoon makeup job and she's cleaned herself up and she's taken off her weird ratty coat and she's in this sort of bodysuit thing and her hair, which is still the same, but was really, really ratty when we meet her, is now kind of awesome. And mm -hmm. it's Daryl Hannah when she's like 25 years old. So she's just as gorgeous as you can imagine her being, given that she's got all these affectations. And it's kind of sad, although I don't know. I really give JF Sebastian all the credit. You know, I think he. Uh, he, I think he's super lonely. I think this woman's being really nice to him. I think anybody in his position would be taken with her and thinking more or less he, that he hit the jackpot. And right. and he's talking, you know, he's talking to her, and she's like, "Well, what do you think? How do you think I look? Do you like it? It's different." And she's like, "You know, Sanderson's so great in this party. He, he doesn't know. <laughs> he doesn't know what to say. Right? He does not know what to say, but he he." admits that he thinks she's beautiful and she thanks him and everything and right you know right at that where the date is really really working or where you really think you're hitting it off and you're about to get the person's number uh her her actual boyfriend walks in and it's important to say that even though with leon and zoro we don't we're not told they're together but they're together it's very yeah. clear that leon is in love with zora and even from the photo it's kind of clear that Zora's in love with Leon. It's hard to explain right. that he has this token of her. Um, and it's, it's, it, it, that's implicit, but it's, it's there. It is. Ex and it's interesting. The coupling isn't what you think. Roy and, and Zora really seem more compatible. This is very much a last of the Mohicans kind of coupling where the two alpha people are not with each yeah. other. They're with the other people. And maybe that's truer to life. I don't know. It's, but it's neat. Um, anyway, she's just right when, uh, Sanderson's smiling and, and, 
feeling at his most confident and that he's done yeah, the right thing. Like, she says, hi, Roy. Yep. <laughs> and standing out of focus behind them is, is, uh, Rutger Howard. And it makes, makes J Sebastian jump out of his chair. Obviously there's mm -hmm. a stranger in here with him. And he's like, hi. And he goes, man, you sure have some neat toys in here. Yeah. <laughs> um, yep. This whole, I mean, this whole scene is really great because it's not, they don't use the tactic that he and Lee, that, that Roy and Leon used on, um, on Chu. Mm -mm. This is, this is okay. But of course well, what they, they, what they need from Sebastian is more, it's trickier than what they were trying to get yeah. out of Chu, which was really just information. That was an interrogation. This has to be handled more delicately because there, there's, at least to some degree, there has to be a willingness on Sebastian's part to help them out. Mm -hmm. He's already helped Pris immeasurably. Uh, but, you know, Roy comes in and he says, what's he say? Oh, Sebastian, I like a man who stays put. <laughs> yeah. Batty's... Rutgers so weird. I can't just quote every line, but every line is quotable. I guess that's the point I'm trying to make. That's a line that means nothing, but it's amazing, and it it tells you something. Roy, in in the intervening scenes, has gotten some information, maybe from Pris, maybe when she let him in the apartment. We don't really, we're not sure when that happened. Um, but she, he's been filled in and to the point that he, by the end of the movie, he seems to know everything, almost like he's been watching the movie with the rest of us. Stuff <laughs> that we we're like, how does he know that? How does he know that? Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe that's not the point. I don't know. Maybe it's, yeah. I shouldn't be so literal about things. Hard to say. But uh, they talk about it and, and uh, you know, we, they explain to him in this scene, we have the same problem you have. And he's like, what's that? And they're like, uh, I can't remember what's, I can't remember the exact term. It ends with decrepitude, premature decrepitude uh, or something like that. Yeah, they're dying too fast mm -hmm. and they want to live and they need his help. And he's he guesses that the, now he didn't know this about Pris, but now he's getting it. You guys are Nexus sixes. I knew it. And he goes, you guys are amazing. Show me a trick. And she reaches into the boiling eggs and grabs an egg <laughs> and does yeah. the egg toss to him. But there's this tremendously sad scene, and it's the best William Sanderson has ever been in anything ever. Mm. It's just, and he's a good actor. This is, she kind of comes up behind him and wraps her legs around him, and she's, she's like, and Batty, because he can't help himself, is threatening him. He goes, you have to, he, he goes, you have to help us talk to Eldon Tyrell, because if you don't, Pris hasn't long to live. And as he, as you can tell, as Rutgers started talking about that, he's emotionally distraught over that and he gets more and more intense. And and Howard's just terrifying in the scene. And Sebastian is terrified. And he said, you know, he says, we can't have that. And then there's this, and there's this long pause, and it's just he doesn't. Sebastian doesn't say anything, and this is kind of amazing. Pris, the diplomat of the two, breaks in and says, "We're so glad you agreed to help us." Like he, the, mm -hmm. the camera has not cut away. I don't know how to explain it. He has not agreed to help them. They're telling him, and they're trying to be subtle about it, but they're telling him he doesn't have any choice. 
And she's like, I don't think there's another person in the whole world who would have helped us. You're our best and truest friend. She says, <laughs> Daryl yeah. Hannah, again, genius. She's so great. But he's, he's he hasn't agreed to help them. He can't imagine this going well in any sort of good way. And he runs out of the room and they sort of give themselves this knowing look. But there's more to all this. This exchange, all this stuff in these sequences, it's, you know, she says, um, Leon, and he, and again, Batty doesn't even answer her. He just starts to cry. And he says, mm -hmm. it's just us now. And it's just, it's, it's weird, but it's desperately sad when he says that to yep. her. When there's they only have this two of us. Yep. There's only two of us now. And she's like, then we're stupid and we'll die. And he goes, and he starts to smile. He gets to, he gets to be the man. He gets to comfort her. Mm -hmm. no, no, he won't. He's, yep. he's, his force of will, he believes, is going to win the day somehow uh, throughout this. Yeah, um, and, uh, and then, and, they, you know, go ahead. I was just saying, then we, then we see the chessboard. Then uh, Roy notices the chessboard. Who's your opponent? Is he uh, good? Dr. Terrell, he's, he's a genius. I've only ever beat him once in chess, he says. Um, and... Roy sort of studies the board and stuff and he makes a move even and, and Sebastian's like, no, no, no good. See, uh, Rook takes queen. And then he's like, hmm, okay. And you can see the wheels sort of spinning with him. And I did that all out of order, but I'm doing the best I can with these scenes. Because um, mm -hmm. none of it happens in that order, actually. Yeah, no. And Other than Pris prettying herself up at the beginning of the sequence, everything else I did was out of order. But you get the highlights. There's a plot at hand here. JF's going to be key to it. We knew that. Roy and yep. Pris are in love with each other. We weren't sure, but you see it. They are, they are madly in love with each other like teenagers. And... Um, and Roy, when he takes his big trench coat off and walks around the room and is trying to be nice to somebody, is actually capable of of being interested in another person and interacting with a way that isn't terrible. It's only when uh, premature decrepitude comes up that he starts to get a little angry accelerated, again. Accelerated. Accelerated. That's so much better. Yep, yep. Sorry, David or Hampton, whoever I just ruined your cool phrase. Whichever of you was, it's an awesome accelerated decrepitude. And the way, mm -hmm. and it's weird the way Pris changes because she's gone from this quiet, scared thing to this super hot, confident, <laughs> although still very childlike and innocent in a way, character. Yeah. Um, she's just, you're seeing her true self for the first time. This isn't an act for JF's benefit. And yeah. And it's, and it, and I think the three of these guys are, can actually work out these problems, and we might, might have a happy ending. We'll see. Right. I do. I love. I do love the moment where where uh, Sebastian is. He, he's there, and Roy says, "Like Sebastian, why are you, uh, why are you staring at us?" And it's and yeah. it's Roy that says it. So because so because if it's if it's uh if it's Pris saying that, well then right. you know, it can be. Then it's a loaded it's question, serious, right? but it's. But it's like, why are you staring at us? He's like, because you're you're so different. You're you're so perfect. You're perfect. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. And um, yeah. Um. So anyway, let's 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 keep it let's keep it rolling here. So we get um 
So then we get. We're uh, not using... computers, Sebastian. <laughs> yeah. Physical. I think, therefore, I am, Sebastian. Um, Excellent, Pris. Now show him why. Um, <laughs> the whole scene just awesome. Everything about yeah. it is awesome. It's fantastic. Um, so, so we get to uh, uh, we go to the Trail Corporation, and uh, JF is helping them. They're heading, uh, helping, uh, and and it's uh, Pris has stayed behind at uh, House de Sebastian, and. Um, and so that's it's the just Bradbury. Roy. It's kind of neat. The they feature the Bradbury sign in it. So yeah. they yeah. they've named it what it is in real life, which is kind of clever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, so we go and and he uses the chessboard. He uses the chess game to. Yeah, you uh, see that to, to again. Move. You see this incredible model of the Terrell Corporation headquarters again in detail. You see that in this glass elevator that's riding up the sort of angled side of the building and they it stops and then you see Terrell uh trading stocks in his giant huge ornate sort of Victorian style bed and with all these little modern accoutrements around these little machines that who knows what they do and his huge trifocals and then he gets this thing a uh, computer voice says uh Code blue code blue something or blue um entry code uh you know it's jf sebastian yeah. and he, he's like sebastian what's going on he gets up and he puts his robe on and walks across the room it's obviously the middle of the night he says what is it sebastian <laughs> you know why are yeah. you here and sebastian doesn't say anything but we see that he's in the elevator with roy because it's all audio on Terrell's side, he doesn't see that at all. So we get we're starting to get how this is gonna work. And uh Sebastian doesn't he doesn't say, Well, I have this he just says, uh, Queen to whatever, Queen to, yep. to Rook Seven or whatever, yep. and then he's like, What what? Nonsense, Terrell says, and he goes over to his chessboard, which is JF's is all kind of marble and weird, like as a place, yeah. and this one is all like pewter and made of castles and things. It's their yeah. chess boards represent themselves, and he says, "Queen hmm, takes queen," just like Sebastian said would happen. And he goes, "What are you thinking about, Sebastian?" And Sebastian says, mm-hmm. "Well, uh, Bishop to whatever seven checkmate, I think." And it's actually Roy says it to him, and then he says it again with the. He adds the I think because he's such a subservient, squirrely little guy that he doesn't want to be presumptuous, even though he knows it's checkmate. I've always hated this about the chess scene. I like the chess. I love the chess as Batty's entry into this forbidden world. I think that's brilliant, actually. Mm -hmm. But it, 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 anyone who are at genius level and play chess aren't likely to be fooled with checkmate in two moves from coming from any angle. The idea that you would sacrifice your queen for mate isn't no offense, but it just isn't a foreign idea to chess novices like myself, let alone uh, these guys. So that always annoys. I wish there were a few moves in there, but I get it. Let's get to the point, blah, blah, blah. It's chess. It's let's just accept it for the figurative. Well, you see, Ryan, in the future, there are only two people that play chess. And that is J.S. Sebastian and Milton Terrell. 
it's, they're, and they're not very good. Even from a chess standpoint, he makes this move. It looks like the dumbest move ever. And when you see the dumbest move ever, your instinct is to not examine ahead. It's to mm-hmm. boom. It's to end the thing. It's to make your move yeah. to to counter it. And that short-sightedness is, becomes his downfall. Well, yeah. Terrell's impressed with this mate. He says, well, milk and cookies kept you awake, huh? That's such a condescending line. Uh, come up, Sebastian. Let's discuss this. And he comes up, and Roy smiles, and Roy comes out of the elevator, or Sebastian comes up first. He goes, uh, this is my friend Roy. And again, Turkel, with, with, with not even being able to see his eyes, just his weird mouth that doesn't even really do anything. Yeah, I don't know mm-hmm. what it is, if it's body language or whatever. But a great actor once said, if you're thinking the right things, the camera will capture it right and that's what's going on with terrell as uh, with joe Turkel as terrell in the scene he's he's thinking whoa what this is uh, terrible this is not a good thing that this is happening there's fear and trepidation but and it's all in this little slight change of body language but terrell's a smooth operator and he says oh uh hello and he's you know he he greets him he's like I was wondering when you were going to show up. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and they sit down and it's, it really is, he calls him the prodigal son return. And it really is that feeling. It's I'm embracing you. It starts with this mm-hmm. scientific debate, which is techno babble of the first order. It all sounds fantastic and probably has some basis in reality, but nucleotides and the viruses stemming from different mutations within cells everything they're discussing is it's on phd level we don't understand it Mm -hmm. the fact that roy understands it's what's impressive because he goes right to this is how we're going to fix this stuff and i always thought and of course i have the benefit of hindsight joel but i always thought hey he should have just said oh hey yeah let's try that i'll get the operating table ready for you right now um but he doesn't he can't help himself. Terrell is a super pompous and superior cat, and he shoots down all these scientific arguments, and he explains to him, once we've set the code to behave in a certain way, any alteration does nothing but collapse the entire system. And you were made as good as we can make you, he tells him. And and Batty, now that he's starting to feel defeated, for the first time we're seeing him, not vulnerable for the first time, but we're seeing him start to get it. I, this can't be fixed. Nothing I thought of is going to work. He says, mm-hmm. but not to last. He goes, ah, yes, Roy, but the, the, can, the candle that burns twice as bright burns half as long. He, he And he keeps complimenting him. He goes, look, he goes, you... You should be so proud of the thing, things you've done. And he says, I've done questionable things. And he goes, yes, but also extraordinary, extraordinary things. things. Revel in your time. Um, and and Roy, it, 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 with his head down, he, sort of, he does this, Howard, you can't see me do it. And those of you out in uh, good old-fashioned podcast land aren't watching me anyway, but he, do, he does this side-eye thing where, again, his body language, mm-hmm. with just a little twitch, has completely changed. And he says, nothing that the gods of genetic engineering wouldn't let you in heaven for. 
and he leans into him. He kind of takes him by the by the cheeks like he's going to kiss him. Mm -hmm. He does. He gives him this kiss on the lips. And it, there's this horrible shot because obviously the cutaway is to Sebastian who's watching this sort of th through a bunch of foreground stuff, this candelabra. Um, when he sees them start to get along and he sees Terrell start to reason with him and even show him affection, he... He, the sense of relief in Sebastian is so palpable and it's so tragic mm -hmm. because out in the audience in movie land, there's no sense of relief throughout the scene ever. Um, uh, Batty takes, takes him, gives him the kiss on the lips and then, and, and then uh, keeps squeezing his head until yep. we start to hear his skull crack he puts his thumbs up under those glasses and gouges his eyes out until the blood runs down his face. There's so many, there's so much intense violence in this movie, but this is the most violent thing in the film for sure. To, to, to even though you don't see the, in a horror gore sort of way, the crushing of somebody's skull to hear it and recognize what it is without seeing it is almost worse. And yeah. certainly we've seen a lot of, potential eye violence this is where it really really happens yeah and the music and this... is is swirling uh sebastian is quivering in fear yeah i was gonna say at the same you know in the same in the same way we just saw sebastian relax we immediately see him uh just you know repel in horror um, at what's but, happening but frozen in horror yeah frozen and batty isn't just killing him he's crushing his head like a like a jealous roman god <laughs> it's hard to explain yeah. but batty's his whole like how well, dare yeah, you it's... i mean his suffering is so palpable and the the fact that he's learned to love <laughs> And that he's going to lose that and that he's starting to accept the reality of that is just brutally harsh. And the music's still wailing away and he kind of gets up from this settee that they're on and he, he's, it, uh, Sebastian doesn't know what to do. He's snapped out of it. He's running this way. He's running that way. He doesn't know mm -hmm. where to go. We see Batty's back to him, sort of chase him out of screen. And he says, I'm sorry, Sebastian. He says to him, and it's, he means it, but yeah. it's not going to save Sebastian. We don't. We're we don't need to see what how that plays out physically, and we're thankfully spared having to witness it. The scene before it's over cuts to the ride down the lonely, lone ride down in the elevator. Yep, and. And we see, although we can't know what he's thinking exactly, we see that he's contemplating what he's just done. He's met his maker and destroyed him. And he, again, Howard plays maybe in this just brief shot of him, he plays maybe three different profound things <laughs> come across his face. And it ends with a weird, God, I don't know. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It, the weirdest, yeah. not what you would expect. Again, everything about Hutker, Howard, really all these replicants, but him more than any. He's a he's a madman. He's a wild man. Mm -hmm. You just do not know what you were going to get from him, and the, his reaction to this particular scene is no different. Right. So well, we cut to a 
go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, in that whole madman, it, it's, it's like, it's, it really hit me when you said he's learned to love now and he knows he's going to lose it. We've seen it's, that. Yeah. And it's, and it's to me, when you said that, it made me think uh, like, this is replicant puberty. This, you know, he, really is. yeah. And, and so he's just got that blind rage that you get when, you know, it's, it's all of these emotions and, and feelings and everything that are coursing through him, even though it's digital, uh, cor- digitally coursing through him, it's still doing it. And, and he, um, you know, and, and, and it's, it, it it could, it's too much a lot of times, just like it is when you're, when you're a 13 or 12, 13, 14 year old kid. Um, yeah. Um, he, uh, and he doesn't say gods of, uh, genetic engineering. He says gods of biomechanics, nothing that the gods of biomechanics wouldn't let you in heaven for. That's, I don't know. I feel like I should correct that because again, all these lines are so iconic and so amazing. And well, even though we haven't released this yet, I mean, I had where it was already getting comments. Um, uh, <laughs> saying, yeah. If we're getting comments in. already, why don't I get any of those floaty heart things that everybody else gets when they go live <laughs> online? That's TikTok, baby. Um, anyway, uh, so we, so meanwhile, so while Terrell is taking care, uh, or no, while Roy's taking taking care of business. Yeah. At uh, Terrell Corporation, uh, Deckard go- is tracked things over to Sebastian's apartment. Really, and to Ford's credit, he's right about this. Deckard's actually just gets a call while he's in his car, saying, "Hey, uh, we just found this. Uh, Eldon Terrell was killed, and we just found this JF Sebastian in with him. Uh, we found his traced his apartment back to. So again, no detecting yeah, going on, no even off." Yeah. He- Deckard is even not allowed to have any cool off-screen <laughs> presumed d- detecting. We yeah. hear it all in this little phone call on his console. Um, and again, we hear Bryant, after seeing the horror and the humanity of it, hearing Bryant in his skin job, you know, sort of non-caring voice spell it out for us is just terrible. It's a very clever juxtaposition Mm -hmm. there's lots of cool atmosphere here uh a flying cop tells deckard he can't drive on the street blah 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 it all looks cool there's some weird little hijackers who like sebastian probably didn't pass the physical to go off world who tear some mechanical thing off the top of his car so there's all this these scenes aren't about that stuff it's it's that all this stuff is always, even in a dark, desolate, empty street that he's on, there's all this stuff happening all the time right? in the movie, and that never stops, and that's very, very cool. Um, so Deckard gets the number. He pulls up to the front of the Bradbury, which we recognize from the big spirally pillars that are out front. Um, and he dials in the number and we see kind of her she's but we know her voice and we Mm -hmm. know she's in there i don't know why she answers the phone again i think this is but this isn't hard to understand pris probably would answer the phone she would know enough not to reveal herself but she'd be dumb enough not to sort of just react to a thing that is happening like i i i I hear people complain about it why doesn't she just not answer the phone but i kind of get it there's she has no reason to to think that any you know that yeah that but would she be does she hides her face 
she says, who is it? She's acting suspicious. You know, she's not hiding yeah. any of her motivations very well. She says, uh, well, who is this? He goes, hey, is JF there? And she goes, no, who is this? And he goes, oh, this is Eddie, old friend of JF's. And it's, again, Harrison, every time he pretends to be somebody else, it plays a guy pretending to be somebody else. It's fun. He plays this mm-hmm. slightly Southern guy, which, as we know, Sanderson has a hint of that. Not so much in this movie, but in most of his other films. And I think him in real life, which is probably where Harrison got this from. And she just, bloop, screen goes dead. And he goes, hmm, that's no way to treat a friend. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, one of three long walks through the Bradbury building. And I'm oh, telling you, even yeah. though even though none of it's two of three, even though none of them, anything really happens, I guess there's a lot of exposition with when JF and Pris first go in. But it's just. Yeah, his is, long uh... walk up, his walk up the elevator, down the hall, uh, the door is open a crack, him coming in. His standing in the doorway discovering these toys and all this stuff. Plus, there's toys everywhere. It's hard to explain. Mannequins and things. Little mm-hmm. spirally gizmos and shit. It's not a busy place, but there's movement everywhere. And so it's, it really is a tricky place to track anything. And to make matters worse, it's full of these humanoid figures. Most of them are inert. But nevertheless, it's a great place to just disappear and hide in. And Pris, yeah. we see her do exactly that. And we see this move with her eyes. That is, is The eyes have it in this film, truly. And her little thing where she twitches and her eyes like flip open or whatever. Yeah. It's, it's alien and weird and robotic. And yet it shows sort of fear and tension all at the same time. But she's hidden herself amongst these things in hopes that she won't be noticed. And of course it's, it's however you spin it, it's still Daryl Hannah in a bodysuit, And he, so he does notice her and he mm-hmm. comes up and he kind of slowly slides this veil off of her. And it's one of those, like she's keeping completely still. He gets in real close and looks and then boom, she just knocks him clear across the room. And again, Pris, she just, she's a, She's. We learn so much about her, and I don't want to demean her, but her sort mm-hmm. of lack of imagination, her basic pleasure model intellect comes out at this really unfortunate time, at least for her. She knocks. She knows enough to knock the gun out of his hand and then beat him up and sort of incapacitate him. But to finish him off on more than one occasion, she backs way away from him and does these sort of weird acrobatics. Right. That she's going to kill him with. Probably because that's her skill set. I mean, I don't think it's like I'm being dubbed or I'm rubbing this in. I really think she's been taught to do flips and be a... Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And that's where a more... Even though she's clearly tougher than Deckard, that's where a, a, a more diminutive replicant gets their strength from is running up to stuff. And uh, But she leaves the gun sitting there on the floor. So on one of her thing where she's doing all these backflips and stuff, mm-hmm. uh, he just reaches over, grabs it, and shoots her. And then she kind of falls over. And again, maybe, I don't know, until maybe this is the most violent thing. In her life. This this one is, yeah, it's the it's the twitching. It's the death throes. It's the, it's the thrashing. Um, it's the squealing. Yeah, it's the squealing. It is there. It, it's, 
it is really, really. This one is is really horrible. It's, she has a seizure of death, essentially, it, yeah. it, along this wall that he's next to, and and we and he keeps shooting her, and we just want we want him to we want this to stop really, really bad, and yet when he shoots that last shot, Ridley cuts to slow-mo. This whole thing is just visually arresting and you can't look away from it. And that last kind of death throw that she goes through. And then, and then as she hits the ground, he cuts back into real time and just lifeless corpse of Pris, this very, very alive person that we spent the movie with. It just falls to her death. And, uh, and then we have the third of three long walks up, though. It's not as long this time. <laughs> we, we see Roy yep. coming out of the elevator um, and coming down. And it, uh, it, Deckard must hear that or something because he goes and, and hides. Or he yeah. hears him come in the door and, and call her name. I think that's what makes him go. So he yes. runs down the hallway, hides around the corner, and Roy comes in looking for her and we can see it's a great shot down the hallway and we know where we know where Howard is and it's this room after room. These it's hard to explain. I it's like Napoleon era like French palace that this place yeah. is set decorated like it's 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 all plaster and yet it's all got patterns to it and everything and yeah, it's very it's, it's the all these rooms yeah. with all these arches and no doors it's and it's so it's so it's weird and there's lots of places to hide but it's also cavernous and massive with a huge high ceiling roy comes around the corner and when we see him uh decker takes his shot and roy jumps out of the way and yeah. Batty somehow knows Deckard's name. He keeps calling him by name, which is weird. Roy, disco- yeah, Roy discovers point. Pris first, but he, he and he, he's affected by it, but he doesn't dwell on it. He knows somebody must be here. Um hmm. and he and it and this is where the taunting starts. It's hard to explain, but that we've got a good, I don't know, five, six minutes of Roy taunting Deckard and torturing him and scaring him to the, his last wit, essentially. Yeah. Um, and it's, that's the point there's, he's teaching him a lesson. Um, yeah. the same lesson, uh, Leon was trying to teach him to some degree, not so much to torture him, but to make him feel what they feel like knowing that death is imminent at all times. Yeah. And, there's this moment where he says, you know, come on, Deckard, blah, blah, blah. I'm right here. All you got to do is shoot straight. And he, Deckard tries to shoot through the wall. They're on the other sides of a wall. And he says, yeah, he he actually shoots Batty, hits him, but he hits him in the ear and doesn't kill him. And Mm -hmm. Batty says, straight doesn't seem to be good enough. Yeah. And he, well, we have a, and also I want to talk about, I forgot about the first thing where he reaches through the wall that he shoots him through. I forgot. Right. Well, but, but even before that, I mean, Roy is, is starting to malfunction. He goes claw hand again. That doesn't happen yet. That that's not yet. No. Okay. So first it's, it's, he smashes. First he sees press. Then he 
quietly goes hunting for Deckard. Then Deckard yep. misses the shot. Then he starts taunting him. And, and what happens is the they're on the and they're on the opposite side of this wall with this water running down the wall. It's raining yep. outside. And like it is for most of the movie. And what happens is you see this this wicked it's one of the coolest gun props in all of film. And it's certainly one of the most powerful handguns that I think we've ever seen in a movie. Because it just obliterates people. Um yep. It's what it is is the hilt of a of a rifle or of a shotgun with the shotgun chopped off and the back the hilt part chopped off so it's just a handle and then it's got these mm -hmm. couple of little lights put in it so that it looks all modern and cool. Uh, yeah. It's a wicked cool gun. I, I'm not a gun guy, but I just Deckard's gun is the coolest gun in movies as far as I'm concerned. Like everything else in this movie, mm -hmm. you see the close up of the gun moving along the wall with it dripping and and. Batty reaches through the wall, pulls his hand through the wall, mm -hmm. and takes the gun out of his hand. And then he yep. says, uh, he, he's talking to him the whole time. I can't relive the whole scene for you, but he says, yep. this, is for, this is for Zora. And he Zora. breaks his index finger. And then he says, and, and uh, Harrison Ford's, we've heard this in other movies, his howl is, is always welcome. His howl of pain when that happens is is intense, and we feel it. We hear, it, just the idea of getting your finger crushed, and the sound of it is enough. But the howl in pain really, really sells it. And yep. then he says, "This is for Briss," and he crushes his middle finger. And then he puts then, and even <laughs> even the look on Deckard's face is like, "What is going on?" He puts the gun back in his wounded hand. And let's go of it so that Decker could pull his hand through the wall. And then he says, all right, here's your chance, but you better shoot straight. And this is where he shoots his ear. Yep. So all this, I think it's the fingers, the gun, all of it, you have to track it all to get through this very physical sequence. So I'm sorry about that, but that's how it goes down. And Decker shoots him and he goes, well, straight doesn't seem to be good of it. Now it's my turn. I'm going to give you a few seconds before I come. <laughs> Yep. Uh, and Decker just got the gun in his hand, and he just and you can tell it's like he doesn't try and shoot him again. He's got more ammo in the gun, but he just he he's had enough. This guy's insane. This whole situation is insane. I'm done killing replicants. They can shoot me, fire me, throw me in prison. I don't care. And he just runs the other way. Run from Roy Brady. That's it's hard to argue with that action at right. this point. He does nothing strategic from here on out. <laughs> he's running in fear. He's running like prey in this labyrinth of this retro-fitted ancient future that we've spent the movie in. Mm -hmm. But before Roy comes, he starts counting. One, two. Um... But he takes his moment, and I think this is what he really wants to do, because I think one way or another, Roy knows this is the end for him. He goes back over to Pris, and he he kind of caresses her wounds, which is weird. He puts her blood across his face on his lips. He doesn't, like, taste it, but he she's lying there dead with her tongue sticking out of her mouth like she's on a slab in a in a coroner's office and he mm -hmm. kisses her so that her expression goes back to neutral it's like this weird you know we've seen it a hundred times the eye closing this is like some strange replicant love version of that and pris with her tongue out is kind of comical and gross 
And Pris, like she's sleeping, is sort of beautiful and desperately sad. And that kiss makes that happen. And it's it none of it's you know it's movies. None of it's by accident. Right. It's kind of amazing moment. And he keeps counting really slow. Three, four. So Deckard can't hear him. It's the whole thing is childlike and terrible. He weeps over her body. And he says her name in this awful way. And then uh, five, six, and he's off to the chase. And we yep. see Deckard running, running this way, running that way. Uh, and we see this great shot of Batty zigzagging down the hallway. Yep. Batty's stripped yep. down to his, uh, he's got these biker shorts on. We'll call them. I, he doesn't yep. seem like he does a lot of cycling in the movie, but you never know. There are it is a bicycle. They're compression world. shorts. They're compression shorts to help with circulation. Yeah, and he looks yep. he looks great in them, as you'd expect. He's in good shape. And Deckard, of course, we never see him without the trench coat on. It, I guess we see him without his shirt on a couple times, but he's a good looking guy. He's a movie star, mm-hmm. but he's not in great shape. He's been drinking the whole movie. He, this chase is, is not, this goes really really poorly. He climbs up a chimney. and he shows up in this uh it it climbs up like a not into a chimney like santa claus but he climbs up this old fireplace and up through this hole in the ceiling that he spies Mm -hmm. and it takes every ounce of effort he has he needs both hands with his broken fingers which he's tied the two fingers together he's taken a moment to do that and he uh and it's actually before he climbs up the chimney where the clinch fist thing happens. To yeah. Him. And we get, yeah. And we get a deck. Uh, we get a bad. We see Deckard is that clinch fist where we were introduced to him seeing that, mm-hmm. that diet, that death throw move that replicants must suffer when they start shutting down. He, uh, he starts making that. And he says, no, no, not yet. He yet, says to yet. it. And he reaches down and pulls a giant. I shit you not. He pulls a giant nine inch nail <laughs> out of the wet floorboards, shoves it through his hand, at presumably the pain and the shock of which keeps his keeps him ticking for just a little bit longer. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, that shot too with the skin before the nail, the skin expanding at the top of his hand before the nail punctuates through. Yep. But, so anyway, they both have punctured hands. One has an extremely metaphorical punctured hand. Although... <laughs> somebody tried yeah. to suggest to me that that there was a Jesus reference in some other movie and I, I shot it down pretty harshly. You can't deny the symbolism here, but Batty's not exactly a Christ figure. No. Or maybe he is for replicants and this is his moment because none of this goes quite like we think. Starting with him giving the gun back, what a berserk and crazy thing to do. Well, Deckard's another floor higher, but he doesn't have the gun anymore. And and as he's kind of coming through, Deck, uh, Batty like shoves his head through this tile along this wall. And he says, uh, you better keep it up or I'm going to have to kill you. And he's he's Jack Nicholson at like the end of yeah, the shining, of the shining. frenzied craziness, at the insanity at this point. And he's just, he is scary. He's funny. Depends on how many times you see the movie. He's everything. He's desperately tragic in these moments as well. And because they're near fireplace, there's a big iron rod fireplace 
poker there and Deckard grabs it and he comes running up to Roy and he just smacks him with it across the face and then he hits him with it again. And then on the third time he swings back to hits it and Roy catches it and he pull, with them both holding onto it, he pulls him closer to him. And what does he say, Joel? It's one of my favorite line readings in all the movies. He uh, says, that's the spirit. spirit. Yep. <laughs> That's so awesome. I because you have to I mean you in the moment you don't know when you're first watching Blade Runner. Please God, I hope you all have first watched Blade Runner and you're not experiencing for the first time with me this incredible climax. But it, there is a lesson going on here. It's hard to explain, but that's the spirit. Fight for life. I've been fighting for life this whole time. You have been disappearing in booze and sleepwalking through life. Life that's a gift that I treasure and that I've done questionable things to bring about mm -hmm. an extension to. Uh, he, Where's he going to go? He goes out the window. Yep. Deckard's got no place to go, so he goes out the window. Batty kicks through the window and comes out there with him. And he says, that that hurt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's complimenting him on the ferocity yeah. of this. And again, poking fun at him. And Deckard even allows himself a smile here for some reason. Because he's he's going for it. He's going to, in this drenched trench coat in the rain, and this alcoholic guy is going to scale up this wall. He's got a couple of places to put a foothold, but he... At one point, the film, and this is maybe not so believable, although climbing is about leverage more than it's about strength, there's one point where he's holding on to this thing by nothing but the two good fingers left on his hand. I find that a little tough to believe. But hey, it's a cliffhanger. It's a really cool cinematic one. And eventually mm -hmm. he makes it to the roof. And then he sees there's a hatch on the other side of the roof. Some good luck for a change. And he starts running at the hatch, and when he gets right up to it, Boom, the hatch door opens up, Batty pops open, his head pops out like a jack-in-the-box, and he's going to come at him. So he turns around, he runs the other way. I don't think he knows necessarily what's coming on the other way, but he's got to run. Yep. And when he gets to the edge, he's got to jump. And he almost makes it to the building next across the alley from the Bradbury that has these weird sort of industrial metal uh, girders yeah, it's, sticking it's out like the unfinished. Side of it. Yeah, it looks like it's unfinished and, and yeah. Very industrial looking given that he's in this movie theater slash uh, hotel district, but whatever. Um, the future... Hey, repairs need to be made. Yeah, exactly. So he... He gets, he doesn't get to the roof. He gets to the girder and he's hanging on to the girder. Then uh, Roy sees this happen and he turns around on his way. When he flew open the, the hatch, a bunch of pigeons fly away. Yep. And in the meantime, he's captured one of these pigeons in his hand. So he's standing there with this white, we're going to call it a dove. It's a pigeon. They're kind of the same thing. The difference yeah. is that this is angelic and white and pure and very cinematically more powerful than a normal pigeon. So that's why it's here, no right. doubt. We, at this point, we're not thinking too much about any of this stuff. And 
He walks back to where the hatch is. He crosses his arms in front of him. We see the nail sticking out of one hand. We see a dove in the other. All right. Yeah. You can, you Christ, Christ is somehow involved in this. Don't <laughs> ask me how. Because this, this is not a movie full of religious symbolism, but this ending yeah. is certainly rife with it. And he runs, boom, 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 and we see him run, leap over Deckard, and land safely. Kind of does the old somersault fall safely on the other side. It's not the first time Roy's made a big jump in his combat experience, probably. And then we see him slowly, as, as Deckard's struggling to hang on, we see him slowly rise into frame as he approaches the edge of the building. And he and he sees him, and he kind of watches him struggle. And it and and this sh there's two shots, but it's the second shot. It's just amazing of Horde ha hanging from this girder. You see how far it is down. It's impossibly far. These are this is a I don't know how they only went up a few stories in the Bradbury, so I don't know how they're forty stories up in the air at this point from climbing up one fireplace. That doesn't make a lot of sense, but whatever. You can see the little lights from a car moving down there in the alley in between, and it's 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 just a breathtaking mm -hmm. shot. And uh, Batty says to him, it's a "Terrible thing to live in fear, isn't it?" Which is something we've heard before. And he says, "That's what it is to be a slave." <laughs> yeah. And meanwhile. Yeah, and yeah. Meanwhile, Deckard is is trying to hold on. Yeah, it's same thing as before, which is sort of cheap that they do this twice because they should have just saved it for here. But he yeah. he he slips off this thing. He can't, hold on, can't hold on he anymore. He is literally hanging by the two good fingers on his bad hand and his his taped up fingers, and he's he's grunting and growling and hanging on for dear life. And it, it we just know there's no. This is it, because there's mm -hmm. nothing, he can't, he's not going to recover from this. He slips and falls, and we hear Batty just holler out, and we see his hand, with the hand with the nail through it, grab Deckard by the wrist, and slowly lift him up over past this girder, and kind of up in the air with his coat billowing out behind him, it's... I'm making mm -hmm. it sound prettier than it is. It's really shot in a way that it would have to be realistically. And yet, and yet in cinema moments, and especially when I was a kid, when I first saw this, because this, I, I don't know, I don't know how to explain what a revelation, what a shocking surprise this is. It's just that howl, that mm -hmm. scream, the desperate scream followed by the shout and the grabbing of him and pulling him up on the building and throwing him over into the corner while Deckard is bewildered and collecting himself to sort of get his body right and kicking himself back till he has something to lean on. We know, we, all, we know somehow in this moment because he's been telling us this whole scene, maybe not the whole movie, certainly not, in fact, but this whole scene that something else is going on with Roy here that's different. Something's clicked. Something's evolved in the final moments. And, and he's not just hunting him. He's, he's not just torturing a mouse in a maze. There's more mm -hmm. going on. When he decides to, to save his life, I don't know. But it's patently obvious that the torture is over. There's no second... Deckard still thinks this isn't the end, but but we know that he, that he wouldn't have done that if he didn't 
do it to save him. If you wanted to kill him, let him fall. There's no better way for your antagonist to go out than falling from a high place. We know that from watching the movies, right, Joel? Right. And then sometimes you got a Hans Gruber him. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He sits down um, cross-legged on the ground and just kind of, you see Batty's whole body, the tension leaves his body, just sort of sits down to rest. And then he gives this incredible speech that we really should say, since we've talked twice as long as the movie, um, it's full of it's a David people speech because it's full of David people's stuff. And it, it's stuff that David re like brings back to life in other movies and stuff. Um, I've seen things. He doesn't say with your eyes, but he say, I've seen things you wouldn't, you people wouldn't believe. Um, and then he says a bunch of stuff that we don't know what it is. See, I've seen sea beeves glitter off the Tenhauser gate. I've seen something, Attack ships off, off, off the, on fire off on the fire off the Orion. shoulder of Orion. Mm-hmm. Um, all those moments will be lost in time, like tears. Just then, his line from the read through, which stuck <laughs> into production, like tears and rain, and it's raining. And then he says, and we, again, we've heard all this before too. He says, he kind of takes a breath and says, "Time to die." And his head slowly droops down, and we know he's gone because his grip on the dove releases, and the dove flies up to heaven. <laughs> yep. In um, in one of the it's for the final cut. It's a redone matte effect where the dove flies because where the dove flies in the movie looks in the original cut looks terrible. And, and, and you always say, Oh, I want the purity of the, and we say that, what did we say? We did three episodes on bring back the, or two at least on bring back the regular star Wars. And every time that comes up, we talk about it, but this, thank God for this insert shot because it, it's a powerful moment and this helps the power. And if they'd have just had more time, that's something they could have done in 1982. So it doesn't stand out like some, crazy digital trickery but that dove flying up and harrison ford's performance in the wake of this is um because it's we spend a long time with him before the next thing happens glancing back and forth and of course that's because in the original film this is where a big voiceover where deckard explains Mm -hmm. it all to us happens uh, this, uh, some of the voiceover writing is kind of cool. It's a detective story. Like a, a hard boiled voiceover is not out of place in a movie like this. It didn't feel out of place the first time I saw it, but here when that voice, if you hear it now, after seeing it since 1992, without it, it, it to hear it is to, it, it's, it's hard to explain, but it's like getting slapped in the face when the talking starts. It, it destroys this moment, this wordless powerful moment of revelation and and again it's all shot so great we see batty sitting there motionless with the rain dripping out of his hair we see a spinner come up behind him and hover there and then zoom up higher then and it's kind of cross cut and cross faded so you feel the time moving a little bit and uh, then we we see from Deckard's point of view, he's looking down the rooftop and the spinner's sitting there and Gaff standing there all crooked with his cane. And uh, he says, um, 
I guess you're through now, huh? And, he, and all, all Deckard can mutter is, finished. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Gaff tosses him his handgun, which he was kind enough to apparently go into the building, check yep. out the forensics. Well so done, he, Gaff. You really get the feeling that Deckard's just been sitting here in awe for a while for that to make any sense. It doesn't make a lot of sense he could have found that gun in that crime scene so quickly, but whatever. Cool gun. It's back in the movie. We get another cool close-up of it. I'm all for it. Um, and then he starts kind of limping off to, to leave, and he turns around and he says, and I guess you're through, huh? By the way, it's the first English language thing we've heard Gaff say other than Lieutenant yeah, Brian's name. He's been acting like he doesn't speak the common tongue. He's been he's been saying this language that almost literally the script calls it street speak, but almost literally made it up out of out of Spanish and it's a combination of Spanish, Hungarian, Dang. and these weird sort of slang things that he mm-hmm. bridged the two together with. Um and he says the line to him, he says, It's too bad she won't live. But then again, who does? And he heads back to the spinner. Then, mm-hmm. no crossfader, a hard cut to the uh, elevator door in on floor 97 in, in um, uh, Deckard's apartment mm-hmm. opening and him coming down the hallway to his apartment and his opening up the door. And this, this is an unsung moment, I guess. This is a place where a lot of people argue you don't need any sort of narrative fakery like we just get to the point here but this is important he comes in and he says rachel's name and he says it three times i think and the way he says it it it's like no sound we've heard come out of this guy for the whole two mm-hmm. hours we've spent with him it's this desperate pleading sound it sounds like somebody trying not to cry is what it sounds like it's hard to explain. He's a better actor than that, so it's not. It doesn't have histrionics to it, but it's just Rachel. It's just. It's just crazy, and he mm-hmm. comes through the apartment and he sees that she's kind of laid out here. And again, the close up of the gun coming into frame from above, where with his bad hand wrapped around this gun, we see that he's had a little bit of medical attention since he arrived at home. He takes with his thumb the bedsheet that's over her and he pulls it back and reveals her her face and her face isn't doing anything and you see Mm -hmm. his head come into frame listening for her breathing and then you see him sort of gasp in relief as he realizes she's breathing and he starts kissing her and he kind of kisses her awake we've all done that but on the cheek and everything um and she looks up at him and he says do you and it's this great thing she's looking up he's looking down they're inverted and he says, uh, do, you, do you trust me? Or as he says, do you love me first? Yeah, let's ask that first. That's a good one. Do you love me? And she says, I love you. I don't know how they could have loved from their, from their brief thing together. But you really get that he needs to know if she does mm-hmm. or thinks she does at least. And then he says, do you trust me? And she says, I trust you. He says, okay, come on. And then next we cut to out in the hallway and. He's standing in the hallway and he's kind of looking to see if anyone's out there. And then he mm-hmm. waves her in and Rachel does the great Rachel waddle <laughs> over the door. <laughs> right. Well, you know, she's still in a pencil skirt. Yeah, she, so. exactly. She, But she just can't. She's not moving stealthily. It's 
It's adorable yeah. in a way. I really do dig it. Yeah, she needs to get the woman a pair of slacks and, yeah. she, and everything will be fine. I, something like that is in her future, I'm I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Because these guys intend to go on the run together. And he waves her on and then he sends her ahead across this little walkway to the elevator. We've seen, very smartly, we've seen this geography three times now before we see it. And we were just reminded of it. And as she's running, we get a close-up of her very impractical heels, and she knocks over some little thing that's sitting there and and gets to the elevator door, and he follows after her and leans down and picks it up. And it's a, it's a, a, based out of what looks like the foil part of a, of a, like a juicy chewing food wrapper. Gum. Yeah, yeah, chewing gum wrapper. Yeah, stick-a-gum wrapper. Um, uh, origami unicorn. And he looks at it, and he smiles slightly, and he nods and crumples it up in his head and nods, heads to the elevator. The elevator door closes. Uh, fantastic five and a half minutes of Vangelis, like, upbeat dance music comes into play. <laughs> like, nothing else that's in the movie, but F it. He gets this is his moment mm -hmm. to do whatever the hell he wants, and it's a brilliant piece of music. And the credits start to flutter by in front of us. And hey, I got through it with time enough to spare to give some awards away and to talk about some deeper meanings and some versions. There you go. Uh, let's start with versions, because here's where a big departure from the original theatrical cut happens, actually, right in right. this moment. The movie doesn't end here. In the director's cut that came out in 1992 and in the final cut and in the script and in the original shooting schedule, the film ended with that door slamming and the, and the music kicking up in a fury and the credits rolling by and it's that music. So I don't know how to tell you, like you can't dance to timpani exactly, but you feel like, like a replicant could. It's just this otherworldly, <laughs> amazing piece of music. I could listen to it over and over and over and over again. All that, you know why, you know why you could listen to it? Cause you're a replicant. Boom, 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 boom. God, it's so cool. Uh, in the theatrical cut. And I actually don't hate, I don't hate this ending. It ends with a voiceover. You see them driving in his car and reflected in the windshield as they're driving and he's looking over at her. You see trees. We haven't seen anything yeah. resembling a tree there's... in this movie. We haven't really seen... There's been a, a daytime scene or two. It's too bright for the first Voight comp test, for example. But we really haven't seen daylight ever. And when you see it at the end of the movie as they're making their run, making their move north... It, it is kind of amazing. It hurts your eyes, you know, and I kind of dig it. And he's got this voiceover that's like, well, they said that Rachel was special. No t termination date. We didn't know how long anyone had, how long we had. But then again, who does or whatever? And then, it, then yeah. the music starts. And it's co-shot with excerpts from The Shining, the aforementioned The Shining, where they took some outtakes from the helicopter trip up in the opening credits of The Shining and right. stuck those in. And you can kind of tell because they are they don't fit right because they were both shot with totally different cinematographic cinema processes, the, both films. Um, so that's a crazy ending. That's the happy ending, they call it. I think the ha he smiles at the end. I think the ending's happy enough as it is with the door slamming shut. Um, but he says Gaff had been there and let her live. It's just Johnny explains it for y'all. It's, it's, it is, I used to dig it. I used to think it was kind of neat. I still like it for what mm -hmm. it is. It's well done, but it, it's movie's so much better without it. 
You right. figure this shit out. You figure it out. You've been told everything. And you haven't been told the things that you don't need to know. So deliberately, the, the questions have been asked and the answers have been left lingering. Amen. The voiceovers, while I think written okay and performed a little flat, but they are film noir voiceovers. They're usually a flat kind of experience. Harrison Ford was accused of reading them poorly um, so that they wouldn't be used. I, that He disputes that. He's like, I wouldn't read a bunch of ADR yeah. poorly. I was disconnected with it and didn't think the voiceovers were a good idea. And that might, you know, to my shame, have come through the performance. But, you know, I did these the best way that I could well after the movie was over. It's like, I don't know what, you know, I don't know what you want from me. Yeah, he had moved on. He was, you know, he... He He hadn't had a pleasant experience making it. Yeah. So anyway, and Ridley, uh, you know, because the director's cut excused the voiceovers, Ridley was often told, it was often told, and he never disputed this much to his shame that those voiceovers were like a producer in Forrest idea to explain everything to us, but they were his idea from the start. The writers didn't want to do them. The producers kept asking him to take them out. They're literally old producer notes and test screening notes where they say, why are these horrible voiceovers still here? They're awful. Uh, Harrison Ford at last year's, uh, no, two years ago's Oscars read these producer notes about Blade Runner to the audience. Um, I think in that setting, we didn't have enough context to get how kind of amazing his reading of those notes were. But it's it, it wasn't... the They take a lot of flack, Jerry Parencio, and this is the last time I'll say their name, and, and Bud York, and they take a lot of flack for trying to undermine Blade Runner, trying to fire Ridley Scott or whatnot, but... They were right from the start and to the bitter end about the voiceovers. The movie's way better without them. Although Mm -hmm. that's, take it with a grain of salt, because I grew up with those voiceovers. I know them more or less by heart. They informed my opinion of what's going on in the movie. So when you take them away, I still know the information that's there. So the film's maybe not as impenetrable to me when I watch it without voiceovers. Hard to say. Plenty of people have watched it only without and done okay. I I think the film's one of its great strengths, other than its visual splendor, is it's letting you make up your mind on a uh, make up your mind on a few things. Yeah, you're on your on your own. I do. I think there are probably right answers hiding in there. Um. And I'll get to right answers here in a second. Let me just quick run through the versions. This will only take me two seconds. The theatrical cut that came out in the United States and the international theatrical cut. Uh, They're the same cut, except the international cut has the eye gouging, has the nail puncturing the hand. The U.S. Mm -hmm. theatrical cut is nothing more than a censored version of the original theatrical cut. Therefore, the international version, if you want to watch a version with voiceovers, is the one to see. There's no reason to see the censored U.S. version just because you're from the U.S. Um, I really appreciate that all these versions are available, but international, international, international for that. Because it's like a TV version, the other version. It's not changed yeah. much, but it, it's... The film's violence is violent. It's horrifically violent and gory, but it's meaningful. It's meaningful violence. It's important, I think, that it be there. Pris getting shot 
Not once, not twice, but three times. It's, it's important. Uh, same with Zora. To take some of the violence out is to, it's like, it's to, it's like the it's trying to make things easier on the audience, and I don't like that at all, especially when it comes to violence. If it's going to be violent and horrific, then feel the violence and feel the horror. That's the whole point. Otherwise, it's just mean. I've said that a bunch of times on the show, too. Sorry for repeating myself. All right. Theatrical versions. Then, Director's Cut came out in 92. Suddenly, he's thinking about a unicorn. What the hell is that? And mm -hmm. where do the voiceovers go? And hey, look, it ends before they go off into the mountains. It's really the only difference is it, he didn't change it dramatically. Um, he really didn't change it dramatically at all. Took out the voiceovers, took out the, the studio-enforced happy ending, and reinserted this sequence that was important to him. And of course, we see a unicorn more than once in the movie, and it's worth thinking about what that means. Um... If I were a worse podcaster, I would broach that subject and we'd bring all that up and we'd hash all that out. Uh, a, we're out of time really to do that. But B, mm -hmm. there's no reason to hash that out. If you've never seen it or if you have seen it and have your own ideas, there's no reason to hash that out. The only thing I would say to you is make sure that your ideas about what those things mean are your ideas. Because the people who wrote it and the people who acted in it don't agree with the people who directed it and they, they don't agree what that means. They disagree and they disagree vehemently about what that means. So there's room for disagreement there. There's a case to be made for what that evidence, the outcome that it suggests. And there's real, there's tons of evidence on one side, but there's tons of meaning on the other and tons of incongruities, tons really, that a cheaper meaning brings out in the movie, in my opinion. But that's my opinion. You can't say, well, Ridley says this, because Ridley, unlike David Lynch, when he was asked what he thought that meant, told us. And I think that's criminal. I think when you ask David Lynch, what the end of Mulholland Drive does. He goes, you know, it's interesting when people do this, like he just won't tell yeah. you. It's the last thing he would ever do. But David Lynch is a writer. Ridley Scott, and he made one of my favorite movies of all time. He made several of my favorite movies of all time. So God bless him and thank him for that. It, it ain't entirely up to him. So don't come to me with that if you want to discuss this further and just for your own sake, don't take his word for it. Don't take mine. Don't take Joel's. You see how quiet he is sitting over there. That's probably wise. Make up your own mind. It's one of the joys of this film. It's to quote Michael Ironside and Starship Troopers is the choice is one of the only things you really have in life. Make your own decisions. Mm-hmm. Jordan Cronenweth shot Blade Runner. It's maybe the best lit movie ever made. It's certainly in the conversation of best mm -hmm. lit movie ever made. Terry Rawlings edited Blade Runner. It is brilliantly edited. And Terry Rawlings, like in Alien, his temp score was so brilliant that a lot of older Vangelis music found its way into the movie, much to Vangelis' frustration. But it's great because the saxophone is a powerful sexual thing, and we only need that so much when we're giving Twinkling Piano and some other interesting choices elsewhere. Plus, two years before Blade Runner, Vangelis wrote a song called Memories of Green. And that's the song that's used in it. I mean, that's it was uh -huh. meant to be, right? 
Yes, but is it is the sexy saxophone music as good as Yes, it's so much better. Although, <laughs> say what I might about how brilliant Blade Runner is, they do both belong to the same family of music cues. That can't yeah. be denied. That is what we're talking about. <laughs> we're just talking about it on an uh, artistic level uh, here to right. four, unmatched. Right. Who else do I got to talk about here before we send this away? Well, Lawrence Paul, the production designer, the people who built this thing, the... All the reused model work and all the reused like foreground things and all the miniatures, they, in a movie today, you would never see reused scenic elements the way you really do notice them if you pay close attention to Blade Runner. They only had so much and Ridley really wanted his film to be cluttered and it is. Um... They used the Yukon building twice. They used the cop station twice. They used those spirally pillars, which are super recognizable when you go hunting for them four times, like many, many yeah. times in locations where they can really only be in one location. Uh, but it doesn't matter. Ridley was right. The Bradbury looks unlike it ever has in anything. It's, it's just kind of amazing and incredible. Charles Nodes and teams, costumes, the makeup is absolutely incredible. Um, we talked about the actors, so you got to talk about the casting because I think it's, I think this movie was a Jane Feinberg, Mike Fenton deal from a casting perspective. I'm not hundred percent sure on that. They did an awesome job. The sound people, are you kidding me? Everybody did amongst the best work of their careers in Blade Runner. And, but more than that, I love it because even if the answers, even if the answers are uncomfortable, even if the answers never come, especially when they never come, like all great speculative fiction and really like all great Philip K. Dick, where this germinated from the very beginning, asked the biggest question there is, who are we? Who are we really? Mm -hmm. And it explores that. In a, in a dark and haunting way, it is better probably on that level than if you examine each little human interaction looking for, you know, some sort of natural honesty. I think it's higher philosophical honesty that we get. And if I have a tip for you, if you somehow haven't seen it and this four hours makes you want to is I would kick back and try and engage with it on that level. And the way to engage in that level is not to sit down with your notes and be a scholar. It's to kick back and let the thing wash over mm -hmm. you and see what goes on. That to me is turning your brain off in a way that's productive when you're watching a movie, you know, leave your preconceived notions at the door, but you shouldn't have to because Blade Runner's gone from a, a box office disaster, really that could have ruined careers to one of the most beloved. And as Joel said a couple of times last week, yep. in the conversation for best ever science fiction movie, I believe it absolutely is in conversation. I think it's un unquestionably top three. I think there's, it's got some pretty sturdy competition in a couple of yeah, places. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, but really, really, really good. And that's why we spent so long talking about it. And that's why I really want to do a deep dive. And I hope I did it justice. Thanks to Charles de Rica and the author of film, uh, future noir for 
enhancing my love and reminding me that I wasn't alone and for giving the thing life again after the fact and for Ridley for sticking to his guns and for being brave enough to revisit something and dare I say actually improve it every yeah, time absolutely it's pretty amazing all right everybody that is going to do it for our deep dive into blade runner um are you mad at us are you mad that we didn't you know what if you're mad at us for not talking about oh is is uh deckard a replicant i want you to come back and tell me and answer me this why did terrell lie to deckard and say that rachel was a replicant when clearly she's a real person let's talk Let's come at let's me. let's end All with right. confusing the hell out of the audience. <laughs> <laughs> All right, reach out to us at the Movie Show with Joel and Ryan page on Facebook at Ask Joel and Ryan Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, uh, and the Movie Show with Joel and Ryan uh, page here on YouTube. If you are watching it, like and subscribe. Give us a rating. Do all the things wherever you enjoy your content of audio and or visual. All right, everybody, that is going to do it uh, for us for this week. We sure do love you. Thanks for your patience. Thanks for your patience, Joel. Good Lord. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Movie Show with Joel and Ryan. Remember, all views and opinions represented in this podcast are personal and belong solely to the speaker and do not represent those people, institutions, or organizations that the speaker may or may not be associated with, unless explicitly stated. None of these views and opinions were intended to malign or deceive. And now... Here's the producers, circa 1982, to play us out.